I am Doug Friedman. And I am Meredith Levy. And this is Your Mental Breakdown. The podcast. (laughs) Yeah, well done. How are you doing, Dougie? Guys, if you hear squeaking, it is not a rodent in your home. It is the chair I'm sitting on (laughs) because I cannot sit still. (laughs) And it's a squeaky chair. That's right. That's what happens when you're on location. I know. Doug, you are amazing, committed all the way in New York and still recording with us. Of course. I wouldn't let New York get in my way. Yeah, New York. (laughs) But I figured if I can make it here, I can make it anywhere. Have you been planning to say that or no, that did just that just come me. up? That's yeah. amazing. Wow. Yeah. Shouldn't be shocked, but it was good. <laughs> yeah, no, I am. I'm in New York. It's true. Start, start spreading the news, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm leaving today. No, I'm actually leaving yesterday. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> yep. Are you having fun? How's New York? It's a, actually pretty amazing. There's uh, I think you and I kind of ragged on New York at one point because we're LA centric. Totally. And I, I have had experiences, many experiences in New York that were less than favorable, not bad, right? but it's to me, my experience of New York has been mostly Manhattan. I've gone to upstate New York, which is different, right? but Manhattan to me has always been very noisy, very dense, very crowded, very, a lot of people. The city, city, the city, the city, city, and not very nice, yeah. but just very like trash on the sidewalk. And it, it's, it stinks. Yeah. And it's just not, I don't like the energy. The energy is a little too frenetic and, and frantic yeah. and, and totally it's not chill enough for me. But now this trip, a friend of mine here is showing me like areas I've never seen of, of Northern Central Park in a place called the North Woods in Central Park, which is beautiful. Like there's actual little waterfalls there and and you walk in there and you don't realize you're in the city anymore. Really? And it's just right there. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And I'm I'm the mountain guy. So going to the mountains is great. There aren't mountains there, but it's nature, nature. Totally. Yeah. It's nice. I never realized there was like a quiet side to Manhattan and being like in a couple places here that have terraces and if you're not on the street side, you're on the back side and it's, it's actually, it can be very quiet and nice here. Yeah. It's not what I picture at all, but sounds good. That's awesome. Totally. Oh my God. My birthday's soon. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you started the countdown like two months out. <laughs> I know. I think we have a month and 13 days. A month and change. That's right. Yep. I can't believe it's November. It's crazy. It's wild. It's Movember. I'm growing my mustache. Are you? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't do that. I've, I've seen pictures of my dad with a mustache and just could not believe. Like, it just looked wrong. I'm growing one too. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Oh, how was your Halloween? What, did you, what was your costume? My costume? I went as a reclusive, social working songwriter afraid of the outdoors in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Jew. You forgot to add Jew. Jew. That's right. That's right. Perfect. Do you remember that client that I had when we worked together in community mental health and they were Jehovah's witness and I asked 1 million questions. Yep. Mm -hmm. Celebrating birthdays. Yeah. No holidays whatsoever. And I'm like, why not? Why not that one? Why not that one? Like I just literally remember a barrage of questions because you know me, I'm curious. I want to know. 
like no judgment. I mean, sad, no birthday or no presents, but. Well, but it was also you asking the client and you were assessing out, is it sad for them? Do they have right. feelings about that? You know, and it's. Right, right. We, we can spin it as, oh, you, you were. You were going through inquiry and trying to get a sense of, of what their experience of life was, totally. even though you were actually just feeding your own curiosity, right? A hundred percent. Both. Both are true. <laughs> both are true. Right. And I know I was talking to grandmother about it because the kid was really young and she was raising him and she was like, we can give presents, just not on holidays. And I was like, oh, that's fun. Yeah. I remember seeing a uh, Prince live and I didn't realize that he was a Jehovah's Witness and in his, in the middle of the what? show- yeah, he started to kind of do like a little thing about that. Yeah, he got very, very outspoken about that. Prince is a Jehovah's Witness? He was, yeah. I think he was not raised that. I think oh, he became one. Right. But there was kind of a semi-famous story of him actually knocking on somebody's door because you're supposed to go door to door in, yeah. in Minneapolis. And, oh. you know, it was like a some old Jewish couple. I think it was like one of the high holy days for the Jews, like Yom Kippur or something, but they open up their door and there's Prince knocking on their door going, Hey, can I give you our newsletter and spread the word? No way. <laughs> yeah. Do you think Prince ever just wore sweats and like a t-shirt? Maybe like bedazzled. Cause when you say knocking on the door, I picture like, a like he just knocks <laughs> on the door with his guitar slung over his shoulder, wearing a sparkly suit, you know? <laughs> right. I don't know. I've seen him play some, some basketball. What? Not live, but oh yeah, he, he would do all sorts of that. I heard stories about him, like he would shut down a movie theater so that he could like rent it out and just go there with a few of his friends or rent out like an indoor basketball court. I think he had an indoor basketball court at his place. He's like the size of Muggsy Bogues or Bogsy Moes or whatever his name was. Muggsy Bogues, who could slam yeah. dunk. So, you know, what, what? Fair enough. <laughs> do you know, okay, you ready for this? Do you know Pearl Jam? Remember that band? Yes, I do, Doug. Yes, of course I did. Do you know what their original name was and what they were named after? A little trivia for you guys out there. What's the first letter start with? M. It's a two-word band name. First word starts with M. Last name. Ooh, last, it is a last name. Starts with? M-B. Oh, Mogsy Bose? <laughs> no, but that's actually pretty cool. <laughs> How do I not know this? I'm a big, big Pearl Jam fan. I can tell you what their, what their original name was and you still won't know what it was. Their what? original name was Mookie Blaylock. Oh, I did know that. You did? Yeah, I did. I've, I love Pearl Jam. Have you, you've seen 20, right? The documentary? No. What? Is it 19 or 20? It's one of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, their, their album was called 10. So it might be 20, like 10 years later. Yeah, I think it was. You have to see it. It is so fucking good. Okay. If you All love right. Pearl Jam, which I do. Mookie, Bla Mookie Blaylock was a basketball player, right? That's right. Yeah. They That's just amazing. The name, so they went with that. It's a great name. <laughs> yeah. But it's probably, uh, oh no, I guess not. I was going to say like copyright, but no, you can't copyright your name unless you're Prince or Madonna. Or David Bowie. I think he not only copyrighted his name, he sold stock in himself. No way. Yeah. I would have bought stock in him. <laughs> I, I remember reading about that. I don't know how it worked out, but I think he, he did... And I think Eminem recently did that too. What? Like he, he actually sold stock in himself. I would buy stock in Eminem. Is it available still? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Pretty cool though. Okay. My Starbucks fucking stock has gone in the shitter. I'm really not happy about it. 
No. Just wanted to throw that out there. And also, why do boys talk about poop so much? <laughs> number one, they don't. And number two, <laughs> uh-huh. number two. I got it. They Speaking do. Speaking of number two. Yeah. Let's uh let's roll into this uh this therapy thing that happens over here. Let's do it. I'm excited. Are you? Yeah, I'm always excited. Oh. Except for it's so shitty out and sad right now, but I know you love that weather. That's why you stay indoors and talk to your therapist. I know. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh intense. I love Sarah. Yeah. I do. I look forward to my clients. I actually, you know, being in New York, I'm going to see a few while I'm here, but I kind of miss seeing my clients. I am really committing to figuring out how to go back to the office soon. Just Mm. for all my clients who don't listen to this, (laughs) if you're excited, (laughs) get excited. Right. Right. Speaking of clients, Sarah, listen to this session and then wait for us and then we'll be right back. Indeed we will. We'll break it down. That's what we do. Chicka, chicka, chicka. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I've been just over and over in my head since our last session is you Mm. saying you are a trauma survivor. I hate it. I hate, I can't like reconcile with that. I keep repeating it in my mind. Like, nope, nope, nope. That's not me. <laughs> I know it is, but it's, it's one of those things that's hard. It's kind of like, oh, I'm a victim all of a sudden, which my whole life I've convinced myself that I'm not going to be. What's the association of, of victim? Because we, we hear that word victim and something happens to us. Survivor, trauma survivor makes me feel probably not even the right connotation or, or even interpretation of trauma survivor, but I hear victim. Don't know why. And what is, what does victim mean when you hear that? A victim to me is a person who has obviously been fucked over, excuse my French, and and you can tell they're a victim. You can see it all over them. You know, I, I've seen it. That's to me, my mental picture of a victim. And that was always what I decided when I was like 15, I won't be a victim because then they win again. They win every single day that I'm a victim. Yeah. So I know I need to learn to separate the two because the way you're saying it is in a way to help me say it's okay to not be okay. Like you always say. (laughs) Yeah. The association that I hear you you saying is victim, even trauma survivor implies some sense of, of weakness. I was preyed upon and only, I mean, you, your language, you've said this, like stupid people get taken advantage of and get preyed upon and, and that's who joins cults. And that's, I don't want to be considered that. I'm not stupid. I'm not a victim. I'm not weak. And on the contrary, I've said it to you before. I think you're one of the strongest, most resilient people I know. You've been through so much. And trauma survivor, okay, but I don't even have to say that. No, it was the right, it was the exact right wording. I don't know why I've just been going over and over and over in my head and trying to tell myself that's not what you meant. And I know it wasn't, but that was just my gut reaction was, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why. Wow. What? Follow that though. Follow that. Don't just, I don't know it. Like let's, let's go there for a second. 
the more we we start, you know, making connections and bringing up the past and going to places that I've pushed away. Sometimes when I think about these things, I'm watching it. Like it's not even me because of how I've sort of conditioned my mind yeah. to say I'm a trauma survivor. I'm like, oh no, not me. Like that, that little girl is a trauma survivor. So I was talking to my friend about it today. What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear trauma survivor? And she was like, somebody strong and resilient. And I'm like, wow, I'm just way off <laughs> because that's not what I think. What do you think? Probably should be what I think. That a victim, that's, that's literally what comes to mind, is somebody who's been through trauma and has not gotten past it. It doesn't make any sense intellectually or logically. That's just the picture in my mind. It does make sense, actually. <laughs> and this is why I want to stick with this for a minute if we can. Because there's something about trauma survivor, victim, it's rubbing you wrong and it's rubbing you wrong because it almost implies that it's still, it's still with you, that you haven't gotten past it. And, you know, and if you just go, yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm fine now. Mm-hmm. There's an emotional content that we hold on to that's in there. And you had an incredible protective mechanism that wasn't just protecting the people around you by being that mama bear, but it was protecting you you got to, in a sense, dissociate from yourself and what was going on. You disconnected from it being your own experience. And I'm not going to walk you back through it now so you can experience it, but I will say that what happened to you, and, and not just physically what happened by being locked in a, in a room in the dead of summer and going without food and water, it's not just those things that you went through. It's the emotional experience, and it's also the abuse, sure, and you said it was mental and physical, too. Like, that was the biggest part of it. And it's the neglect, because there wasn't anybody protecting you, and there wasn't anybody there for you to, like, talk to about what you were experiencing, what you were thinking, what you were feeling. So that is in you. It helped shape your brain the way it did. That's why when we talk about some of the things work, go, oh, right. This is part of where that comes from because that's what got shaped. Always for you, I'm going to think of that that sub, sort of double core that I've talked about on the very core of you is a happy, joyous person, a bright and shining soul. Then there's that core around it that's almost around it, protective, protective. And like all this stuff has happened and it's very defended. And then beyond that is that happiness that you just have and, and being good at what you do a little bit of a perfectionist, a little OCD, like <laughs> just, just a little, right? I like how you say a little. Right. Well, and all of that is so that it doesn't penetrate that protective core. And if we don't do that, we're not going to get to the true inner core. I mean, it's all a part of you. It's all you. And it's your experience. And the trauma that you've been through is real. You did go through that. Yeah, and my fear of unraveling the person who I am now by what we're doing. I want to do this. I want to do this journey. But the other side of me gets these moments of sort of panic, like, is everything I'm going to go through and talk about and revisit and even maybe remember? There's a lot of memories that are completely suppressed. Right. Until I right. hear a song 
or I, I read a newspaper article and there's some quote from Berg and then I'll just get this like rush of, it's almost like cartoon. You know how at the beginning of Marvel movies, they're like, and they flash all those pictures. I swear I have experiences like that all the time. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Close that, close that. Like, ah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Close it because it's not safe. Yes, it's not safe. Right. And I'm scared it's going to undo the one side of me. I'm scared it's going to make me vulnerable and like other people I know who have not dealt with their past the way I did. And on the other hand, I know it's very important to do this because I have to, because it's just something I, as a human, feel I have to bring myself through. Yeah. I've had a lot of thoughts this week. Yeah. A lot of how you're describing this and and what you've gone through is similar to when we first talked and you said it's like the Bruce Almighty opening the file cabinet and it just like spills out and there's all these (laughs) files. Right, exactly. And you've compartmentalized a lot. Getting a handle on it is, Mm -hmm. let me put a handle on this suitcase, on this compartment and carry it along with me. Like part of what we do is set them down, open them up in a safe space, in a safe way. Yeah. And it does require you being more vulnerable. And it's in a sense, we're digging into the double core, going beyond just the the happy person that's fine with that file cabinet Mm -hmm. shut. (laughs) with those suitcases packed in hand and we're going, right, but we don't want to carry on that way because we know there's something inside of it. Then we get to that protective core and that's the one you're going to protect. You will fight me on some things. You will win most of the time. (laughs) I don't want want to. You won't win all the time. Don't worry. Okay. (laughs) Because there will be times when, and I'll go mostly at your pace, but when we get to that protective core and I notice it being protective or I see the pattern, we'll look at, can we open that? And the unraveling is getting to the center of the Tootsie Roll, you know, is getting to what I said is, is your true core, which is that bright, shiny, happy, joyous soul that you really are, that you really were as a kid. That's still you. That is you, period. So the unraveling just pulls off all those bags, all that weight, all that stress, all that needing to be, that the compulsion to be mama bear, perf- perfect protective at all times. I don't think you've experienced, oh, it doesn't have to be like that. (sighs) And that's okay. That's going to take a while. (laughs) I got a while. I'm fine. (laughs) We're good. And you know, the last thing, the last thing we're ever going to do is walk you through a traumatic experience and have it re-traumatize you. Yeah. In, in a perfect world, walking through a past experience and not being traumatized by it. Sure. But honestly, I even, it's so weird. We were compiling information last night, I think my brother and I on the cult. And we found this website with a link to all this music, cult music, right? Which was all we were allowed to listen to as kids. The only thing we were not allowed to listen to any secular, they called it music. And he was like, don't get triggered. And I laughed because I'm like, that wouldn't trigger me. Sure enough, (laughs) I started playing one of the songs and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that anymore. I had to like quickly turn it off. It was a weird 
moment because like I told you, I ran away at 15 and I have never on purpose revisited that portion of my life. So even to read newspaper articles or see documentaries, it's like, oh, 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 oh. It's interesting. Yeah. I don't think there will ever be a time in your life when you don't get triggered by things. It's when we do get triggered, can we acknowledge it? Can we recognize it? Can we be okay with, yeah, I I felt not okay for a while. It reminded me of that time when I was unsafe. I'm safe now, but it, oh man, did it bring me back? And the idea of when we walk through some of the stuff that that you went through, when we do walk through that, It's not necessarily that it's going to be re-traumatizing. It might be very emotional because you didn't get to have those emotions. You didn't get to express those emotions. You might not have even understood all of those emotions. I'm also looking at being able to have compassion for that younger version of you that went through all that. That's a huge part of it for sure. I wanted to truly be there when it gets there as opposed to what a lot of trauma survivors do is they will speak about something very clinically or matter-of-factly because we focus so much on the detail almost as though we became an outside observer because to be in our own bodies and experience it no too much it does make sense actually i was talking with sister three last night actually and she i was asking me how my therapy was going and i told her you know it's actually great sometimes things will bubble up to the surface and i'll have to kind of check myself because i'll feel something will happen or something will be said and it will i'll have a knee-jerk different reaction than i normally would it's almost like something is in my mind when we have our therapy And somehow, subconsciously, it bleeds over a little bit. And I have, like, interesting reactions that I wouldn't necessarily have. And so then I told her, you really should consider going to therapy as well. I think all of us should consider it. Okay, so a little bit of background on this sister. By far, she was, in my opinion, the most abused of all of us children physically, emotionally, mentally, just ritualistic abuse since she was six months old. She is defiant. She is is like, you want to beat me? Beat me harder kind of thing. That was her protective mechanism. You know, she would actually eat soap because she got her mouth washed out with soap so many times. She was just consistently, ritualistically abused. Her entire life. She spent many, many years as a full-blown drug addict where she could leave what was happening and make her own stories. And this is one beautiful thing that came out of her trauma is she is the best storyteller. She's amazing. What we would do when she was about to be beaten or locked in some tin can, we would run, run to a bathroom and she would tell me a story. Like she would just make up a story like a princess was in a castle and blah, 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 until they would find us and drag her off. And that was just like our pattern. That's just what we did. So her reaction to me saying, maybe you should consider therapy and just absolutely not. And she told me, she was like, if I go back to that 
place, I'm going to die. Like there's no way I'm going to pull myself out of it all over again. Some memories are too painful to revisit. Her trauma and then my eldest sister's trauma are probably the the most intense of all of us siblings. My eldest sister was born in like the era of the cult where it was all about sexual abuse. And then my sister was at the point where it was all the mental and the physical and the, I think the pedophiles went from raping children to beating children. But it was just interesting to hear her tone in her voice where she was just like, oh no, I can't do that again. No, if I ever go back there, I'm never coming back. And I was like, yeah, wow. It is a lot. And, and that's where having compassion <laughs> comes in. Because I, I think you can hear that from her and that's you going, oh, wow. You were there too. And I couldn't do anything. Yeah. That's the worst part for me always. I mean, I had my own stuff happen to me, but what I remember is just being watching this happen and being able to do nothing. Yeah. The worst for me. My brother went to prison a couple of years back. Oh, wow. And this is my brother who he calls me sister mom because I basically raised him. But, you know, I got him after he had also been ritualistically abused, mostly by our stepfather his whole life. He started dealing drugs and then he, he got set up by a rival drug gang and he got sentenced. There came a moment in time where I, a friend of mine, he was going to have his driver take us out so we could visit our brother and the car came and I just couldn't get in the car. I couldn't do it. I just had a complete, total breakdown. I was like, I literally can't. I can't do it. I can't see him like that because once again, there's nothing I can do to save him. And seeing him like that, I just, I wasn't strong enough. It's things like that, which is, I think probably, well, at least of what I remember is my biggest trauma. Yeah. It's helplessness, maybe, is the word. I mean, I, I think that explains a lot of your hypervigilance, being so much of a doing person. It's like I said to you a few weeks ago, the worst thing I could ask you to do right now is meditate. <laughs> Does, no, that might be helpful at some point. I've tried so many times. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable. You're not there. Someday, I'll get a call from you lying on a beach with an umbrella drink in your hand going, yep. yeah, I was just holding the grains of sand and watching them slide through my fingers and just thinking about nothing. It was incredible. Yeah, we're not there yet. <laughs> oh, that's a nice picture. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you can at least have that picture and go, ah, oh, yeah, that's nice. We will get there. It will take some time and it'll take some work because that, that guardedness, that protectiveness that you have against the powerlessness, against the helplessness, against the abuse and all of that. Yeah. It's something that unfortunately in your life has followed you. Your ex is not a very nurturing person. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I like how you put that. I mean, look, I'll cut this part, but I'll say it like this. Your, your ex sounds like an asshole. Oh my God. The worst kind. No, you can leave that part. 
He is a narcissistic, evil human. Literally. He gets, he gets a kick out of it. And a lot of it is having power and control over you. Probably 99% of it is that. Right. However he can do it. And that hits that core fear for you, that helplessness, that powerlessness. We were together for 10 years. We lived together for 10 freaking years. So he knows a lot of these things about me. He knows how I grew up. And I swear to God, he uses that against me. It's almost like everything I ever told him about my upbringing is literally the buttons he pushes. Yeah. And it sucks. And it's, I can modify the term trauma survivor and say, you're somebody who is still living actively with trauma and is being re-traumatized daily. Yep. Xanax. That's what the Xanax (laughs) is for. (laughs) Yeah. Man, and here's where I see a lot of your strength and your character. The way you are with your children. They can talk to me about anything. They might fear their dad. They will come to me and we will talk. And boyfriend, your relationship with him. And he was in the cult also at some point independently. He was, yeah. But I didn't know when I met him. Right. Yeah. I didn't know. And he had a very different upbringing. There was different levels of the cult. So there was like the inner circle where all the shit went down. And we were there because my parents, I told you, were like kind of high up in the leadership. And then as you sort of went further out, there was just nonsense, but not like, he'll tell you like, "Eh, yeah, I was fine. It was a little weird that we had to read these weird fucked up things from Berg all the time. But other than that. (laughs) Right, right. And I'm like, okay, you be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that that highlights like very different experiences and different situations. And it's it's not one that I, I don't think he ever has presumed to know what you've gone through because he's gone through it too. He hasn't. No. And he'll say that straight up. Yeah. Right your experience with him has been very healing. Same way with your kids. It's yep. It's also kept the trauma alive in you unknowingly because you are hypervigilant and protective with your kids. And then you have to deal with ex-husband. Oh, yeah. Even your siblings talking with sister. That's like you say, her movie and her journey and hey, it's like religion. You know, my parents still want to be all Christian and freaking evangelistic and weird and whatever to me. That gets them through their movie and whatever, you know? It's not my journey. It's what gets them through life. So, hey, more power to you. Quite literally, people get a script for their movie and they will stick to it. I need to stay there and it's escape and don't take my script away. Yep. Well, we can rewrite it like, nope. I'm going to stay here. You, on the other hand, your movie, you're like, okay, I'm in this act of the movie. I have kids now. I have a good boyfriend. Like, things are good. I want to stay here. But wait a second. My character is still acting like this, this, and this. Why is my character still doing this? Well, let's, let's look at act one and look at that script and look at what was going on. And here's the beauty of it being your movie. You are not just the lead actor. You are the writer and director and producer. I'll take some executive producing credit in there somewhere, right? <laughs> yep. But your your metaphoric movie is one that we are looking back on and looking at that act one 
we will have a little sense of, of detaching from it, even though you were detached from it there. And we'll go through it and go, okay, well, well, what was actually going on for your character? Because this is that version of your character from, you know, that act, that scene over there has shaped what your character is doing now. We need to understand that scene and that motivation and what was going on. So we understand how we are now. Got it. Now we can rewrite parts of it, not necessarily to change what happened, but to understand your character more and to understand your experience and validate it. Because a lot of what you went through back then, you didn't get to talk about, you didn't get to understand. You literally ran away from it 15. None of it. Yeah. Even as you talk about it now with people, there's a, a necessary level of detaching from it. 100%. Yeah. It's literally like, it's not me. Like I'm, I'm telling the story. It, it almost seems like an old movie. Yeah. When I recall an old movie, that's how it is almost when I'm, when I'm talking about stuff. Exactly. That's what we'll, what we'll walk through. We might even crawl through it because we are not going to run through it and sprint through it. Walk. I like, I like walk. I'm not a crawler so much. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to walk through it in a way where we get to appreciate what the experience was. And when I say appreciate, I mean, your emotional experience and what you went through that will have a lot of powerlessness, hopelessness, fear, maybe moments of excitement and joy, however short-lived. We'll have moments like that and you'll see them because those shaped you too. Yeah. Even you being that, that happy person and that person that went, wait, that's just wrong. And I know this, that came from somewhere that came from you. Yeah, it did. Yeah. We were talking uh, again with my brothers and sisters and this subject came up and, and people were saying like, well, I bought into it. I was also born into it, but I bought into it. it it's always been a very foreign concept to me. Like I have a brother who 100% was on the leadership track in the cult. He bought that, ate it, and served it. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, you've got to be a few crayons short of a full box then, because what the hell? Does it make you angry? Maybe not. Mm, I don't know. Angry to me is an emotion that you feel toward a person or a situation. I feel more, more confused. I want to understand how they bought into it. What about it made you believe that? I was born into the exact same cult. I was taught the exact same things. And even more importantly, I grew up with parents who were leaders of this cult. And I still didn't buy it at a very young age. So it is a little difficult for me to wrap my head around it. I don't know. Sometimes I think people use it as an excuse as well. Okay, there's, there's stupidity. And then there's just pure, like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Because it never happened to me. Look, there are so many reasons why that can happen. I mean, some people might have different chemistry in their brains. Some people might have mental illness. Some people might have different needs. You know, you say we grew up in the exact same way. No, you didn't. You grew up slightly different. The circumstance might've been same, similar, but your individual experience of it and how you made sense of it was different. Look at you and sister. 
sister who had an incredible imagination. That's where she disappeared to. You had an incredible thirst for knowledge and wanted to like actually lit and you ran away to real life. And then tried to understand. <laughs> that's a big theme for you is, is right. I'm not angry. I'm just confused. I don't understand. And sometimes we just have to go, okay, I don't understand. To me, it's ignorance. It really, to me, stems from ignorance. And one good thing that did come out of my life as a child Mm -hmm. was experiencing cultures and countries and people from every walk of life. And to me, the only word in my mind is ignorance. I'll throw another word in there for you because I I say the same thing, but I use a different word. And my word is fear. Because of the unknown? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll never forget. I think it was a seventh grade English teacher said to me, man's greatest fear is the fear of the unknown. I love it. Whoa. I love it. Yeah. They want to protect what they know. And anything else is unknown, uncomfortable. They fear it. And it's a threat to them. And it's a perceived threat. You know what does make me angry, and I will use the word angry, is you just have to have faith. Yeah, because you don't have to worry about all those other things. You don't have to do anything. Like, if you've got the script, that's how you live, great. You might live a wonderful life. And wonderful. It's great. Good for you. That's awesome. Really, I I don't judge that. That's a choice. Fear is what has people so protective and so guarded to protect what they know, what is at what is at their core. And I'll flip that for a second, and you won't like me at first, is that same level of fear and protectiveness is what you use to guard yourself. It comes out differently. Yeah. No, it makes sense to myself. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Some of that OCD stuff, it's obsessive, compulsive, can't st- these thoughts are there and, and I, I'm thinking about it and I'm not okay unless I do this. So I have to do this and make that okay. That's your protection from that fear that you're not okay. Wow. Yeah. And that not okay, a lot of that is feeling powerless, feeling helpless. That's something that's not okay. In fact, just to highlight how this has shaped you and still influences how you are. Coworker. I know she's pissed. I know something's going on. I know it's about me. What is it? I have to know. I have to know. I have to know. Interesting. Yeah, that is, that's the, that's fear. That's interesting. I never would have thought of it like that. Relax. Nothing's under control. <laughs> I love it. It's like a Buddhist saying. It's, it's when you realize that nothing is under control, then you can actually relax. Yep. It's when you think you can control these things. You can't relax because you need to have control. You need everything just so. And that's kind of your MO. I want to get to the Buddhist. I want to get there. I still can't fully embrace it because that would mean just, oh, yeah, here I am, a huge mess. (laughs) Well, here's, here's one of the wonderful things that I learned about Buddhism when I was studying Buddhism was you can be Buddhist without it being your religion. Sure. Yes. And that's how I feel I'm at like with principles. Right. And to me, that's beautiful. It's a way of living. It's a way of life that isn't dependent on faith. Exactly. But it's, it's beautiful in the sense that it's about you and your own heart and your own soul. Mm-hmm. And 
the world around you. I love, I love that. I love the whole idea of karma and of giving good and getting good and a hundred percent at my core. That's where I find peace in a bit of a fucked up way most of the time, because it's about other people and making other people happy. But the sense of harmony is why I'm here. (laughs) And look at you. You just talked about that's where I find peace. That's almost you lying on the beach with the umbrella drink. Your brain has a space for that, knows what that's like, knows what that might look like or sound like or feel like, like it might become your mantra, relax, nothing's under control. Keep calm, big Sarah will handle it. (laughs) Right, right. Probably should throw that shirt away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can handle it. But we're learning not to handle, we're learning to set the handle down, pop the suitcase open, unpack it. Keep calm, big Sarah. We'll let you handle it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And the crux of that, that saying, the relax, nothing's under control. The crux of it is, again, once we realize that nothing's under control, then we can relax. Anybody who tells you to relax can fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who says, wow, there is so much that is not in our control. Now you'll listen. Yep. Right. True. And that's that's how we'll get there. We'll get to that route. And remember that getting to that route means looking at the places where we don't have control, where we have been powerless and helpless. And that's scary. And we're going to do it in a way that's okay, where we know we're going to get to the place of letting go of the handles and relaxing. (sighs) Because you, you control so much and try to control so much. And it's exhausting and it doesn't work. It served you very well for a while. We can't have it be all you all the time or else. True story. (sighs) Thank you. And we are back. We are. Oh, wow. This was, um, I loved how I'm going to jump right in. Cause she jumped right in the beginning. She was like, all right. She just thought so much since the last session about how you keep calling her saying to her, you're a trauma survivor. Right. Which of course we talked about how, how that stuck with me and I get it. And she talked about how it just makes her feel like a victim. Right. And then of course, like, well, what is a victim? And for her, it was someone who's been fucked over and you can tell that they are. So right. I am a very much the victim mentality, hmm. which I think is very different from being a victim. Totally. For me, when I think of the victim mentality, it's somebody who uses, I doesn't have to be consciously, but something, their pain, their trauma, their life circumstances as an excuse to maybe not do something or to do something. Right. And I think for lack of a clinical term, it's like the poor me, woe is me. It's not fair. Well, I think it becomes not just a defining characteristic for the person, but something that they use to define themselves and to put forth for attention and for some sort of like, well, she said it the other day, recompense, some way for, for somebody to make it better. And it's, right. we've talked about it and seen it in narcissists and borderline personality where they're, they're looking for attention. They need the attention and they want yeah. it. So there'll be some sort of a victim to get that. Right. And that's sort of what Sarah was saying. Like 
she saw it in people and said, when, when I asked her, what does that mean to her? She said, when I was 15, I decided I would never be a victim, but they won't win. Yeah. I don't want to look like a victim. I don't want to sound like a victim. I don't like the association of that. Yeah. And it was, I think, really cool that she was thinking about this all week. And I told you last week when we were breaking it down, I, I repeatedly said trauma survivor. Yeah. Like I even said, well, let me say it again. And I was annoying yeah. you and probably her <laughs> in some way for good reason, because it stuck with you and you had to reconcile it, right? Exactly. Talking about, I think she said, someone who's been through trauma and hasn't gotten past it. Yeah, exactly. Right. But you don't get past it. You work through it. Exactly. Right. One of the things I was wondering, she talked about being scared of opening all the memories from the past and a lot of things are blocked and right. she doesn't want her life to be unraveled. And my thought was hearing that somebody say that, like, did that make, does that make you nervous at all? Me? Yeah. Like as a therapist, like when someone says to me, like, I don't know if I want to jump into this because I don't want my whole life to unravel. Oh, yeah. And this is a really big trauma in my mind. I'm like, well, fuck, I don't want you to either. And like, I can't control whether that happens or not. Does that make me a bad therapist? If it happens, mm. like I had all these thoughts. Oh, sure. And I was wondering how you feel about her hearing her say that or. I get almost excited about that and not in a sadistic way. I get excited because I think this is where healing really happens. Right. And she said it, I think the very first session, she was like that Bruce Almighty cabinet that opens up and all yeah. those files come. Like, she's like, people say things like, I don't want to open up the floodgates, right? I'm afraid. And she said this too. I'm afraid if I start crying, I'll never stop. Right. That tells me there's a lot of wound there that needs to be healed. And there's a right. lot that they're keeping in and a lot of their anxiety or, or issues could even be physical issues. You know, a lot of times I, I get people that have IBS or digestive problems and they have yeah. this kind of experience where they've just shoved everything inside. Right. So when I hear them say this, I get excited that that's, and I help them recognize that that's probably what's creating so much havoc in your system right. and so much unwellness. So if we can open that and do it together, right, and process it, and process it in a safe space and a contained space. So maybe it's just once a week in therapy and maybe it comes up and you can check in. And, right. and I, I tell people sometimes too, and you know, if it gets really intense, we can see each other, you know, twice or check in during the week. Right. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to wait seven days. Yeah. But I'm all about like getting to that place to actually work through it and not re-experience the trauma, but just unpack right. a lot of that stuff. So I no, I I, I love this stuff. I don't worry about it. I feed on this and, and I, I have to, sometimes I do have to check myself to not go to it too quickly. Right. Really slow down. And I think we all, if we're doing this work, we feed on it or you feel, I mean, obviously, you know, we really like what we do. It's just the way she said it. I was like, Oh fuck. I mean, I don't think about it that often when clients bring something up, it was just, I was just like, well, what if you do unravel? And, and by the way, <laughs> I needed to, I need to, I couldn't believe you said this. Okay. You're like unraveling is like getting to the center of the Tootsie roll. No, it's not. It's a Tootsie pop. Ding dong. Wait, is it a ding dong? <laughs> <laughs> you said getting the center of a Tootsie roll. I was like, come on. Yeah. Tootsie pop. It's the center right. of you're Tootsie right. pop. And for all of you who are not like 150 years old, like we are, I don't know if they, if you've ever seen the commercial where it's the owl and it's like, how many licks does it get, take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? And <laughs> I don't know right. about you, Doug, but I certainly tried as a kid and then always failed because we would just start biting it. 
Oh yeah. Well, yeah, you, you do. And that's, in, yeah. I think the owl in the commercial did bite it. Yeah. One, two, three. Right. Yeah. So anyway. And, and I think it's really common of, of people being afraid of unraveling and not wanting to open the floodgates. The whole point I think of therapy for people like that is you have a, a, a space to do it that's safe where you actually can unravel. And it's our job, if we're trained in it, if you're not, you should not be doing this kind of work right. with this kind of client. But if you are trained in that, you can allow somebody to unravel with you there, knowing right. we will put you back together and not like in the last three minutes of the session, but we will, we will spend the session. There's an arc to a session and you kind of dip down to that unraveling and then you bring them back up and you curve back up and give them some sense of strength or right. maybe some hope that this is how we do it and this is how we process and we'll keep doing it. Stuff will come up for them during the week, of course. So you can make yourself available if you want, but that's... yeah. It's that thing that, you know, when she said, talking about trauma survivor, and she said, I'm like, no, 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 you called me a trauma survivor? I'm like, that little girl is a trauma survivor. I'm like, yeah, that little girl is who you still, that's the one who has the wounds. That's the one who needs to heal. Yeah. Yeah. And I was shocked that she said that her, she and her brother, like the previous night or whatever, had been going through stuff. Right. Having to do with the cults. And, and I was like, oh, wow, intense. And then she said, yeah, uh, since I was 15, I've never purposefully revisited anything to do with the cult. And I was like, what, what, why last night? Or why just now with your brother? Like what? Well, and, and maybe some of this stuff is, is opening up for her and she's more right. willing to do this and, and feels like a, more supported. So she can, in the same regard, she was even saying <laughs> when she was talking about doing this with her brother, like, uh, they were talking about music that they listened to from the cult. And yep. she was like, Oh yeah, no, I, I don't get triggered. No worries. It doesn't bother me. No problem. And yeah. then one of the songs came on and she got totally triggered. She was like, Nope, Nope, Nope. Undo, right? undo. Like, Ooh, yeah. wait, right. That's why I pack it up and shove it down. I don't want to. Yeah. And it was bringing that up. And that's part of what's going to be the process at her pace, not mine of looking at some of this stuff and it kind of even, I can give her a little bit of, of exposure therapy. We can talk to her about it right. a little bit, but recognizing like part of why those triggers are so shocking sometimes to us is because we have this protective core around what we're really feeling and we keep that core intact and it, it's impenetrable right? until it gets penetrated. And then boom, we don't know how to deal with any of that. Right. And it was interesting to hear her really talk about her family, her siblings. She talked about then how she had also talked to her sister about it. Let's see. She had her the third sister, her oldest sister, and then her brother. I know she was talked about those three. And the third sister had or like had asked her about therapy. Right. And Sarah was like, yeah, maybe you want to consider going. And she was the most abused one. And was like, fuck, no, I can, I am not doing that. I am not reopening that. And I guess if she said the way that sister handled everything was like, oh yeah, you want to beat me, beat me fucking harder. And oh, that story when she said when they were coming to like get her to beat her or whatever, mm, that they would the run to the bathroom. And it was interesting. They would run to the bathroom and the sister would tell Sarah a story. It wasn't right. like Sarah would tell right. her a story. And so I thought like, oh, that's so interesting it was her way of keeping her mind occupied or whatever before they were coming to get her. And Oh God, Sarah said like the worst part of all of this was just not being able to help her do anything. And it it's so fucking sad. 
Yeah, I, I think there's there's a couple of things in this that that really struck me, and that her talking her talking about her sister and her sister, even though maybe there was some drug abuse and and there was some some way of protecting herself from that, right? You know, she right. just needed to avoid, and and that was her compartmentalizing. Okay, but in the moment, as kids, it was becoming a storyteller, right. being able to come up with these fantasies and take you out of it, and that's when you know we were talking about Roberto Benigni. And the Life is Beautiful movie and how right, in the Holocaust right. and in a concentration camp, he tried to give his son oh. the experience of just, look, it's it's funny and then it's this and it's that. Right. And it's, it's everybody finds a different way to get through things. That's why when she said at different points, oh, we had the same upbringing, we had the same experience. Like, no, no, you didn't. Right. You experienced the same thing, but your experience of it was very different. And for her, we heard her talk about the powerlessness, like not being able to do anything, Right. Yeah. And even her, I think she even said, there's nothing I can do. I wasn't strong enough. And that verbiage, like, right, that's that's the hypervigilance now is feeling like I'm not strong enough to do this. I need to be stronger. Right. And vulnerability for some people seems like the opposite of strength. Right. So being vulnerable becomes not a good thing. Not anything will do. I need to be stronger and stronger, which means I'll be more compartmentalized, more compartmentalized, build that protective core so I never can go there. Cause I'm, I don't know what there is. Yeah. And it definitely depends on the situation. I do think there's appropriate times to not be vulnerable at all. I'm, i.e. probably don't go to your deepest vulnerability as someone's beating you. That may not be effective. Right. Like, right. so I understand it. And then the problem is later, how do you, how do you maybe change that? And she even talked about, and then her brother, the one who was the, I guess she said he was the most ritualist. Wow. Ritualistically, uh-huh. Drew, I feel you, Drew, um, <laughs> ritualistically, ritualistically abused by the stepdad. And he ended up being a dealer and he ended up going to prison and she went to, was going to go visit him and literally couldn't get out of the car or into the car or something to go. And so for her, it was like, okay, I couldn't help these people. Like, right. I don't want it to be in my face. I don't want to hear these songs. I don't want to until she does. Right. Like, well, and it's her having control over it might be nice. Yeah. So she can control when she does that stuff. And that's part of what exposure therapy is. Mm -hmm. It's being able to control how you're, how and when you're being exposed to this stuff so that you can process it one, one bit at a time. Right. For her, as we were talking about it, and she's talking about the trauma that she's experienced and and what that was like, and we're talking about the effect that it's had on her, stopped her at one point and said, yeah, maybe we don't say you're a trauma survivor. We say that you're still experiencing trauma. Oh, yeah. When you talked about her asshole ex. Yep. I mean, that was, she called him a narcissistic evil human. I was like, wow, really does sound like a fucking asshole. Right. And, oh God, it was so sad. Like her saying how he knew how she grew up and he, to this day, uses all that shit against her. It's fucking horrible. Right. And you were like, yeah, you are re-traumatized daily. And then you guys started talking about her current boyfriend. I need you to ask her if you don't already know, (laughs) how the fuck do you happen to meet a boyfriend that not only was in a cult, but in the same cult as you? Like, she's like, we had no idea. We're the friends of friends of fam, like there had to be some connection, 7 billion people in the world. Sure. This was a very large cult. We do talk about it at some point. So you'll hear about it. It's not like they were at a former cult 
member mixer or something like that. And it's, it's, you know, it's okay. But they couldn't have just like met on Bumble, did they? I mean, that would just be crazy. <laughs> like I'm just saying you will find out exactly because okay. she'll talk about it more directly. Okay, good, 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 good. She talked about how his situation was really different because he was in like a quote unquote lower level. So for him, it just was like not traumatizing, really. It just was like. Sure, sure. I mean, they might, they might have, like we said, different experiences and different situations, but yeah. it was a similar environment overall. Totally. I can't believe that her parents are still evangelistic. I mean, I can, of course. Right. It's got to be rough. I, I don't think they're evangelistic. They're not still his religion. Oh, no, 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 no. Evangelistic Christian, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they, I'm sure they believe in God and they want to be good Christians. Yeah. And okay. What probably what led them in, or what drew them to the cult was something similar where they were doing something for their faith. And, and that's right. We'll hit that later in a few minutes. She, she talks about faith and <laughs> gives her two cents about that, which yeah. I'm wondering if you picked up on, but I'll let you go. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, well, part of it was her just like constantly questioning how the fuck do people. And she said, I'm not angry. I'm confused. I'm sure there's some anger, but I think there's true confusion of how do people like buy into it? How are they raised in the same Right. exact situation. And you talked about like different either mental illness or different, literally body chemistry, brain chemistry perceptions. Sure. And I just think it's got to be confusing in the ways that I think there are a lot of confusing things, just like the Nazis, like how do you just buy into that? And it's a lot of brainwashing. Yeah. A lot of brainwashing. It's like you, I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast, the Stanford prison experiment, right? Right. Yeah. Like when people are put in a certain position with power and authority and, and control, they feed off of that. It's similar to, I, I mentioned this one too, the brown eye, blue eyed experiment in school yep. Yep. where a teacher allowed kids with blue eyes to have certain privileges and the brown eyes didn't. And there was a sense that the kids got when they were the privileged ones and they were felt very entitled and they, they did buy into it. Then they flipped it the next day. Yeah. And there were kids just crying and they didn't understand. And, and the other ones, instead of having the compassion, they thrived on it, which was what the Stanford prison experiment was like too. Totally. It's really easy to say, I would never do that. I would never do that. And there are some things that maybe, but tell you're in the situation, right. who the fuck knows? It, it was interesting because I mean, what you were picking up on was when Sarah and I were talking about it and I was like, oh, well that, did that make you angry? And I was trying to get something out of her. Yeah. You know, and trying to tap into something because the, the whole thing, I've been walking this line with her of she can be very intellectual with this stuff. Totally. I want her to get emotional. And there was something, I was looking for something and I didn't hear something, yeah. which yeah. is pretty incredible to me hearing it back. Right. And something that, you know, when she went, well, I, I don't really get angry. I just, I, I got confused. I don't understand this. Okay. She was going intellectual again. Totally. Right? And then, well, I'll see if you picked it up. I'll say it in a second, but let's, let's go with you. Okay. Well, let's see. I taught, I was thinking about her trying to learn and understand versus like being ignorant. And then I started going into man's greatest fear is the fear of the unknown. Did I already miss it? That line that came from, I don't think you ever had Stephen Bellin, our English teacher. He was great. I remember I when so. you said that it really struck me. Yeah. It struck me when you said, it. I was like, so true. Right. 
Right. It's, it's anything foreign. We don't know. It's, it's, yeah. that's what she was saying. Like it, that, that what gets her not angry, but confused is, and, and is ignorance and people not right. knowing. And it's the unknown. That's where a lot of this comes from. What I was going to say comes right after that. So keep going. Okay. Well, my last part was about the Buddhism. It's, it's actually linked to that because when I was talking about Buddhism with her, it was, I was telling her about Buddhism and living a certain way can just be a way of life. It doesn't have to be about faith. And that's one of the things I loved about Buddhism was it doesn't require you to religiously be a Buddhist. You can have a Buddhist way of life and a completely different religion. They don't have to be in conflict. I wrote yes and no. I wrote, hmm, yes and no. Okay. Just because I also practiced Buddhism for a while and I, I agree with you. I don't know if... The Dalai Lama, he would say, yeah, like you can have a lifestyle that is similar to the way that we live our lives. I don't know if you would have a Buddhist lifestyle according to, I mean, because Buddhism is a religion. It can be a religion. It can also not be a religion and be a way of life. So like when you die, if you're Buddhist, are you saying like you're not claiming to be Buddhist? You're just living the sort of replication of the way Buddhists live. Is that what you're saying? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I, I would say a true Buddha is not necessarily defined by saying, I am a Buddhist. Here's my religion. This is how I follow it. This is my faith. This is my practice. Right, right. A yeah. true Buddhist can also never refer to themselves as a Buddhist and still be a Buddhist. Right. Yes, I totally agree. Living with those principles. And part of right. why I brought that up is because she said, you know what makes me angry and, and she said, and I'll use the word angry is when people say, you just got to have faith. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing where, when I listened back, I had been waiting for her to get angry, to show yeah. me emotion, to go there. And when I heard this, when I was listening back to this episode, I just kind of went, oh fuck, there it was. Yeah. There was a place where she allowed the anger to come and she brought that in. And what did I do as the therapist? I went intellectual with her yeah, and went to, I missed the emotion and I just went with the theme of ignorance and having faith as a trigger for her and, and exploring that. Yeah. We went intellectual and we moved away from emotional. But now that I heard that, I know that that's a place where she can tap into that emotion yeah. and we can explore yeah. that by when people talk to her about just have faith, because that's almost, if you think of it less in the religious context and more in what is somebody saying to her when they say, just have faith, it's trust that everything's going to be okay. Totally. Give up fuck control, yourself. give yeah. up power, <laughs> right? Fuck yourself. Yeah. And she's saying, no, no, if I don't have control, if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. I can't have faith. I need to tangibly do it myself. Right. And she loved when you said, yeah, just relax. Nothing's under control. Right. Which is one of our favorite lines. That's right. It's it's going on our next t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and that like, once you realize that, then, okay, great. Right. It, it's not relax so that nothing is under control. It's right. when you realize nothing is under control, you can relax. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like saying the same thing as just have faith, but it's the, the faith, and I'll air quote that, is realizing that you don't have control, whether or not you give up control to a higher power, or you just yeah. say there is no sense of control anyway. So, right. all right, I'll just go with it. Right. Well, and I think that, I think that just have faith is maybe is like making everything so external. Whereas like right. saying, okay, well relax, nothing's under control means, okay, you know what? Like I internally am going to make this decision that 
I don't have control over, over everything. So now what? It's like the dialectic, right? It's like the radical acceptance. Right. Doesn't mean it's okay. Doesn't mean you like it. Right. It's just, okay, this is out of my control as opposed to just being like, just do it. Just have right. faith. Right. Don't worry about it. Relax. Like, fuck you. That's sort of like the the t-shirt that she's talked about. Keep calm. Sarah will handle it. Oh, I know. I was like, no, 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 no. That is not the t-shirt we're going to get for you next. Right, right, right. And that's something where, right. Yeah. We got to, we got to have a Viking funeral for that shirt and then give her the, the new relaxed <laughs> shirt. Funeral. Right. And, and we're not going to take her old shirt away from her and burn it right now. No, not yet. It's got to be something that she embraces that she does when she can also go to that place of realizing, oh, wait, it's not powerlessness that I'm embracing. It's embracing that I can't control everything and I don't want to. Yeah. And I think, and you guys at one point talked about walking through it, crawling through it, not sprinting through it. And she's like, nah, I'm not going to crawl. She's like, I'll walk. She's like, we'll walk together. I'm not starting with crawling. I'm done. And I was like, all right. Yeah. Perfect. That's funny. It's, it's funny. Sometimes I think, uh, you know, I've told you that she listens to the podcast and she's like, yeah, I feel like Meredith's like my other therapist. I'm like, yeah, I, I think about the mentalities that you guys have and yeah. you would probably see the same way on a lot of things. Yeah. And that's like, I'd be like, let's run through the fire, Sarah. Right. Right. <laughs> and like, and she probably could and would. And I'm like, no, no, both of you need to just yeah, slow your roll. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. And it's just different ways of approaching. And it's just so interesting to see. And and that's the crazy part about therapy. And that's why I, I think you and I both are so adamant about finding a therapist you connect with because right. it's like, okay, well, this is your life. And we don't want you to be working with somebody that you don't feel totally comfortable with. Right. And for the most part, a therapist should never tell you what to do. I mean, look, when I say, please don't use heroin <laughs> tonight, like, of course, don't do it. That's what I'm telling you not to do. But right. for the most part, it's kind of like, okay, so how can we, what can we do here type thing? Right. It's nice as we crawl and walk, not necessarily sprint through all of this. We're really helping Sarah find a way to just live her life. And take no shit. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's not Sarah. powerlessness. It's powerful. Exactly. Well. I'm glad that she's starting to really process. Yeah. Delve into this. Yeah. We're getting there. She's not unraveling. Not yet. Nope. Not this week. Bit by bit. We'll stick around, come back next week, hear more of what we unravel. In the meantime, you guys out there live your life. And take no shit. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <You> Bye. <did> it. <laughs> <laughs>